So uh, today's uh, lesson is the provision for salvation, and this is part one. Uh, next week we'll do a part two, obviously. Uh, in our last study, Pastor Ron spoke of our need for salvation and also on man's nature as fallen creatures corrupted by original sin. That's what we covered last week. And although man was created upright and good originally, man fell. And in, in that last study, it was concluded that because of the fall, the natural man is now in a state of total depravity. Some like to use the term radical corruption. Now, before I get into anything else, I think it's important that I emphasize this depraved condition because it's this reality of man's depravity that sets the context of salvation to begin with. And again, the topic is the provision for salvation. And I want to I want to emphasize and speak a little bit more on uh, total depravity because it sets the context of, you know, uh, God providing salvation for us and, and how, that, how that works with that. Uh, I want to begin by looking at a few passages in Scripture that speaks on man's depravity. So let's, uh, let's look at some passages. The first one is Ephesians 2, 3, which says, Among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So again, this is, uh, this is speaking about the nature of man through ordinary generation, meaning by the mere fact that you were born as a man in Adam, you, you hold or, or you have a nature that... Uh, God is already condemning, right? You are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Matthew seven eleven says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now you notice I underlined there, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts. Uh, the point there is pretty obvious. You're evil. You're evil. Uh, he's speaking about you as, as a creature, as a, as a man. You're evil because you've inherited the corruption and the guilt from Adam by original sin. Another uh, passage is Ecclesiastes 9.3, which says, this is, an e this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after, the, after that, they go to the dead. So again, I underline that part where it says, uh, hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And then the last one, Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And so this is a verse that describes those who are defiled and unbelieving, which is, which is man. Now these passages speak on the corrupt nature that we've inherited through Adam. By nature, we are sinners. However, the confusion oftentimes isn't so much the idea that man is sinful. You know, you can talk to an unbeliever and he can say, yeah, I'm a sinner. You know, so the idea that man is sinful is it, that's not the confusing part. 
uh, oftentimes I think where, where more of the confusion is, is on the state of the person's soul. So, in other words, the question in the end of the day is, is mankind merely spiritually sick or is he spiritually dead? Those are two different things, right? Is he just sick or is he, is he spiritually dead? And for that, I think Ephesians 2, 1 and also Colossians 2.13 answers that pretty clearly. Uh, can someone read Ephesians 2.1? And Colossians 2.13, can someone read that? And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty clear that the natural state of the soul of man is that he is spiritually dead. What does that mean, that man is dead in his trespasses? What it means to be spiritually dead is that man does not have the moral ability to change his corruption and sinfulness of his nature. Uh, in other words, he, he is, it's not something that he can simply will against. right? He can't will that off. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 13.23 says, can the, can the Ethiopian change his skin? or the leopard his spots, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, man can't change his nature, nor does he want to change his nature. And out of his corrupt nature come actual sins, sins in the mind and sins in the heart. Your nature makes you prone to that, makes you prone to think sinfully and act sinfully according to your corrupt heart. Now, on the contrary, a spirit that were to be alive would have the capability to do what is right according to God. But a dead spirit is one who is a slave to sin by the bondage of his or her will. In other words, your nature uh, inclines you to not only do bad things, but to desire bad things. Uh, it affects your will. Um, and so oftentimes we say, well, don't I have free will? Can't I do good and bad? You have free will only in the sense that uh, it's free within the bondage of sin. In other words, imagine uh, a sinful nature being a prison. You're free within the prison, but you can't get out of that nature. So you're free to do many things, but everything that you produce is coming from a corrupt and sinful heart. Uh, and this is what the church has confessed for centuries. Let's look at the uh, Second London Confession, for example. Put it up here. I don't know if you can see it, but I'll read it. Uh, it. I had to fit it in one screen. I don't know why. But <laughs> I, it's just OCD kind of thing. <laughs> the uh, chapter six in the London Confession says, and this is of the fall of man, of sin and the punishment thereof. Uh, it says, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root, they, Adam and Eve, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, 
the subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. And uh, this, is a, this is a good summary, pretty much of what Scripture teaches regarding man's spiritual deadness. And it also helps us understand what it means that all mankind are sinners. As R.C. Sproul once put it, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And the idea is, you know, okay, you sinned. Oh, that means you're a sinner. And we point the finger at the person. They're a sinner because he sinned and we saw him. No, you're sinners. You're a sinner by nature. And the reason why you produce sins or you do things that are wrong according to God's law is because who you are is a sinner uh, by virtue of your union with Adam. The natural man is a sinner simply because of his union with Adam and the guilt and the corruption that he received from him. The Psalms puts it this way, Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, uh, moving on, it's in this very state in which man is in need of a savior. Okay? Man is spiritually dead, therefore he doesn't just need a little help. Right? Man doesn't need a little help. He doesn't need a little medicine to help him uh, for his sickness. Uh, he doesn't need a boost or a push towards the positive way of living. That, that's not the point. And I know there are many parents out there who think that their lost child simply needs more positive friends or that they need other young people who are good examples to their son or daughter in hopes that this would steer them in the right direction. That's often the temptation with the way that, uh, you know, many parents think. But the truth is that positive examples, for the most part, are inadequate to do the job that they need. Because the root problem is not that mankind is sick or misguided. The problem is that they're dead spiritually. Man needs to be resurrected from the dead. He needs to be made alive spiritually. Uh, I remember growing up in church, and I laugh because I know some people here were with me. Uh, I remember growing up in church and watching like the youth groups uh, put on a play, and, and they would do like a special presentation for the church, and so the youth would get together and do a play. <laughs> and... Um, the plays were always similar. Like you would go to one church or visit another church and they would have the same kind of plays. And they always had the same narrative. Uh, I, I would, it would always start with a young girl, right? Walking around with a flower in her hand and she was like the symbol of innocence. Uh, and in the background, some contemporary Christian song would be playing. Uh, and from the side stage, right? The guy dressed in all white representing Jesus. He enters in and they begin to ballroom dance to the music. Uh, as to show that she and Jesus were united. They were good friends. And then uh, as the Jesus actor goes dancing and he spins her and she floats away innocently, uh, she lands in the arms of some guy dressed in black with a red cape. <laughs> and, and of course, the guy dressed in black with the red cape was representing the devil. 
And all of, a, all of a sudden, it went from CCM music to like rock music because she landed in the hands of the devil. <laughs> and this was probably my favorite part. Uh, suddenly, a dozen guys dressed in black representing the demons. They stormed the stage, uh, coming from all sides, doing cartwheels and uh, crawling into the scene like, like animals. And... Uh, the devil and his demons pull out beer bottles and needles, like, <laughs> like over-exaggerated drugs and alcohol representation. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would pull out the beer bottle and the needles, and it would be like in, in order to tempt her to do drugs. And for some reason, I don't know why, but she goes with the devil because of the needle in the bottle. Um, by the way, I forgot to say, uh, a lot of these plays were done in pantomime. With, I don't know why. Uh, by the way, if you don't know what pantomimes are, they're like scary clowns. They were dressed in black and painted with white faces, and they wouldn't talk, but the whole play was done in silence. Um, anyway, at some point in the play, and this is the interesting part, at some point in the play, the young girl is caught in a tug of war with Jesus and the devil for some reason. And I mean it literally, like one hand with the devil and one hand with Jesus, and they're doing like a tug of war. And in the end, the winner is, I hope you can predict who the winner is, Jesus, right? Of course, and that's not too hard to predict. And yet, for some reason, when Jesus wins, the audience stands up and cheers as if they didn't know Jesus was going to win. And you can tell, though, and I noticed, that sometimes the, the, the applause was not so much towards the quality of the play, like, good job, that was an excellent play. A lot of times, the, the, the clapping was like, wow, praise God that God has, you know, brought the youth and taking them out of a life of drugs, blah, 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 and brought them into the church to do plays because they could be in the nightclub right now, uh, you know, doing, getting into some trouble and thank God that they're in the church and they're doing plays. Amen. Uh, but this, this was the kinds of plays that I would see growing up uh, and it was always the same story, a battle between Jesus and the devil. You know, she starts off, you know, hanging out with Jesus, and then a few minutes later, she gets tempted by the devil, and then Jesus gets the victory. Uh, but this, was the, this is the kind of play that's very familiar to a lot of people. Uh, but the narrative of the play is exactly how most Christians envision Christianity to be like even today. Uh, many people have the same assumptions as this play has, right? They assume that all people begin good, that if they end up bad at some point, it simply means that they've fallen from the path. Uh, but the Bible says the opposite. The Bible teaches that you were never on the path, right? That ever since you were born, you ran from the path. You were essentially dead to the path. In fact, the more biblical version of this kind of play would have been a lot shorter, the play, if it were biblical, should have started like this, right? The curtains open, the first scene, and all you see right in the middle of the stage is a casket. No music in the background, just pure silence. In fact, all the lights in the house were off. Then suddenly, a voice cries out, Come forth! And the body in the casket rises. The end. That's the end of the play. Not even a minute. And the curtains close, no one claps, everyone goes on. <laughs> now, I say that not to express that uh, salvation or the, the miracle of salvation is short and boring. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, 
uh, but rather I'm, I'm just saying that to make clear that when it comes to your conversion, you, your conversion as a man, have a very short role, if any, in the actual play of salvation. In fact, your, your role is being the dead guy, and you don't have any lines. In fact, the director didn't give you a script, because there's nothing to say. Um, and, and again, uh, the, the, the key question to think about uh, with everything that I've just said is, what can a dead guy possibly contribute to his salvation? How does someone dead help himself get alive? You can't. You're dead. You don't even know, you don't even recognize your need to be alive as a dead person. <clears throat> uh, by the way, this was the controversy in church history with Pelagius, right? Pelagius was a monk from Britain who during the 5th century was in shock of the teachings of St. Augustine. <clears throat> Pelagius held to the position that Adam's sin affected Adam and Adam only. Right? Pelagius didn't believe that man inherited the corruption and the guilt from Adam. That man was not dead, but rather that he still had some functioning ability to seek and to move in a direction to achieve salvation. And this is to say that Pelagius believed that there were no changes in the nature of man due to the fall of Adam, and that man is born in a state of righteousness even after the fall. That even though it is possible for him to sin, that man doesn't really lose his ability to be obedient. This was Pelagius' view. Pelagius went on to say that even after the sin of Adam, it was still possible for every human being to live a life, live a life of perfect righteousness. It was possible. It was unlikely, but he said that he had the capability. He had the will and the ability to, to, to live righteously. Uh, he would even say that some have achieved that status. Pelagius also reacted to a statement that Augustine made, which was, this is a statement by Augustine. He says, grant what thou commandest and command what thou desire. This statement might have single-handedly provoked one of the most important controversies in church history. The reason for this is because, because of what that statement is implying. And I'm going to explain what that statement is implying. That statement is basically saying, God, grant me the ability to do what you've commanded and command what you desire. See? So Augustine's statement rightly presupposes the reality that man, although he's commanded by God to do his will, has the inability to do so apart from God providing the grace necessary to perform it. In other words, a person dead in his sins needs the grace of God to break through his heart and interrupt his corrupt will. He needs, outs he needs the outside to come in and, and, and help him. Uh, he can't do it within his own with his own will because he's dead in his sins. The, dead, the, the person dead in his sins, if left alone, will never seek God, nor will he desire to pursue obedience uh, uh, to God's will. And, and this is biblical. We see this in Romans 3.10. Can someone read Romans 3.10? No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. 
because of his deadness, right, man, mankind in their, in their dead state, he doesn't even feel the weight of his own sin, let alone seek for salvation in Jesus Christ. He may seek to justify his sin with different religions that can make him feel justified with all the lists of duties that some of these religions provide to make the person feel justified and feel better about themselves. But he'll never seek God on his own will because his corrupt nature will fight against it till the day that he dies. That's the state of the unbeliever, the person who has not been born again. His nature hates God. He will fight against it until the day that he dies. And this will lead him to uh, eternal damnation. It's not until uh, the Holy Spirit interrupts, breaks through the doors, breaks through the doors of his heart and, and changes his nature. I, I always, I, I remember growing up too, I, I keep bringing up the past, but I remember growing up and hearing a lot of people say, you know, you know, in, in, where, where I grew up in the specific kind of church that I was in, this is what I heard a lot. Um, they would say, you know, you have to let Jesus in your heart. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's, he's a gentleman. He's not going to come in until you let him in from the other side. Um, and and that's, that, that's, that's a misunderstanding of Scripture because the reality is if it were up to you, you wouldn't let him in, right? So the real picture is Jesus breaking through the doors of your heart. He's coming in and he's interrupting your will. He's grabbing you by your neck and pulling you out, saying if you stay in there, you're going to hell. So Jesus, and that's why, this is why Christians, we have, to, we have to let that sink in and allow that to shape our worship. Like, if it wasn't for God interrupting your heart, breaking in against your will, you would continue to desire uh, the other way. You would continue to desire against God. And, and by grace, God sent his spirit. He chose you and he sent his spirit to come in and break through your hardened heart, your will, and, and change your will and shape your will in a way that is Godward. Um, what does this mean when it comes to salvation? What this means is that if you're saved today, this is a miracle from God. And salvation can only be attributed to the reality that God sovereignly chose you. If at some point you've responded to the truth of the gospel in obedience, considering the fact that your corrupt state did not possess the ability to respond that way, you can only thank the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. This reality that God is in sovereign control over everything is often overlooked by many Christians today. Some people hate the idea that God is sovereign, especially in the category of salvation, because it makes them feel like they don't have free will. However, if it weren't for God to intervene, you would remain dead in your sins. Look what it says in Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. Can someone read that? All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's an example of the sovereignty of God in whom he decides to grant salvation to. It says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The decision is on God. John 6, 44. Can someone read that? 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Another example of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Can someone read that? Last one, Ephesians 1, 11. Can someone read that? So you see the terms here, predestination or, or predestined uh, according to the purpose of his will, having been predestined. You know, these terms that imply that it the, the only way that man could be saved is if God sovereignly interrupted the will of man, uh, choosing those whom he decided to elect. And he does this according to the purpose of his will. So again, we see that God does work. Uh, he does the work of election and predestination. And apart from God's election, again, we would be without hope. Yet for many, it's difficult to agree that God sovereignly elects those who are to be saved, and the reason why it's hard for many is because of their lack of understanding of the full extent of man's depravity. The doctrine of total depravity must first be understood in order for you to come in terms with the, ne with the necessity for God to elect in order for salvation to be possible. In other words, you know, maybe you've had interaction with someone who may be a Christian, but they just don't see how God chooses people and how that's even fair. But, but the, a lot of times the reason why there's issues there in, in others understanding the fact that God chooses and he elects is because they don't understand to the full extent that man is totally depraved, that he, he comes into the world with, with no ability to turn his will around and, and, and face it upward to God. Uh, and I think it's important that uh, when we talk about election and predestination, that, that we're not arrogant about it, right? When we share the, uh, the theological truths about predestination and election, uh, that, that we understand that a lot of people just don't understand uh, this idea of predestination. Um, and, and what I always advise other believers to do is to, to emphasize more on the fact that man is totally depraved. And, and when that person uh, starts to understand his inability to come to God on his own, uh, apart from the grace of God, then it's easier to understand the necessity of God electing that person in order for them to, to come to true saving faith. A couple of quick verses here. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 5, says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, and this is the key part here, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Uh, God saves you while you're dead in your sins. And the good news about that is, if you're still struggling with salvation, don't, if you're still struggling in belief, don't try to clean your life up in order for you to be a Christian, recognize first that you're in need of God's salvation. Right? God saves you in the midst of your depravity. Uh, it says there, even when you were dead in your trespasses, uh, 
he made us alive together with Christ. Another verse is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Right? God made it. God made salvation in such a way that no man can really say, wow, I, I took that step. I, you know, I did it. You know, I'm, I'm glad I did that. And then all of a sudden begin to boast on his decision. Right? God designed this great act of salvation in such a way that it would leave man with no real reason to boast. In the end, if, if God were to ask anyone why they should be given eternal life, no Christian should have any real reason to give except that it was by grace that God willed for him or her to receive salvation in Christ. Because apart from that, they would continue in their sin. And if you take time to read Romans, the book of Romans, you'll see how God has been doing this, you know, sovereignly choosing. He's been doing that since the beginning of time. God has always exercised his sovereign control in human history to orchestrate things in such a way that would make all things go according to the counsel of his will. This includes those who are being saved, but you know what? This also includes those who are not being saved. Romans, the, the infamous Romans 9. Let's go to that. The controversial Romans 9. Can someone read Romans 9? Romans 9 verses 9 through 13. Thank you. So in this passage, we see that even in God's election between Jacob and Esau to be the father of the line of God's chosen people, we see in verse 11 that they weren't even born yet without any opportunity to be judged by doing good or bad deeds. And yet God, for the purpose of election and not because of any goodness that he saw in man, chooses Jacob over Esau, stating, Jacob I loved, and Esau, I hate it. This is an example of a historical account of God's acts in salvation. It shows us that salvation is ultimately of the Lord's. And if you ever, here's the thing, if you're ever tempted to think that God is not being fair because he's not granting grace to everyone equally, let me remind you that when you think that way, you officially stop thinking about grace because by definition, Grace is something that you don't deserve. You don't deserve salvation ever. There's never been a point where, man, I conjured up good merit. I think, I think I'm going to heaven. By definition, grace is something that you don't deserve. And to then say that everyone deserves equal opportunity in grace is not to be thinking of what grace really is. In fact, Here's a picture of people. Here's a picture of a room full of people that God deserves, that God deserves to give grace to. See that picture? See all those people there? God owes no one anything. God owes no one mercy or grace. God would be entirely just to send every rebellious sinner to hell, which includes every single person on this planet. 
If he sent everyone to hell, he's right for doing so. Why? Because no one is good. If he decided to grant a few mercy and grace, he is just in doing that as well by virtue of Jesus' sacrifice. If he wants to give some people grace, he can. I remember, have you ever heard uh, when people say, um, I'll, bring, I'll bring a story real quick. Um, I remember being at work and I was passing out gum to, to my employees, you know, passing out gum to everybody. And uh, I, I wanted to do that because, you know, they've been working hard. And here's a piece of gum. Good job. Uh, so I'm passing all the employees gum. And then someone from over the counter, this is the, the public, they come in to, to get our services. Someone says, hey, you got a piece of gum for me? And I say, uh, you know what? No, I'm all out of gum. You know, I'm so sorry. I, I, you know, this is just for the employees. He says, well, if you don't have gum for me and everyone in this room, you don't have a piece of gum for all of us, no one should be eating gum. And I, used, and I said to myself, wow, that's true. I'm so sorry. Guys, you know, give me back the gum. <laughs> then you know what? I started to realize that that's not true, right? That's my gum, and I paid for that gum. I went to the store with my own money. I paid for the gum, and I gave it to whoever I want. And that's my right, right? In other words, this idea that everyone deserves equal opportunity on grace, it's not true. That's not justice. By definition, grace is something you don't deserve. No one in that room deserved gum. <laughs> but if I wanted to give somebody gum and not the other person gum, that's my right. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. <laughs> But, I mean, it's just a simple analogy that we are accustomed to God's grace. We are accustomed to it. And we, after a while, we begin to expect God's grace. And the moment you expect God's grace and it becomes a demand of God's grace, that's where you're not thinking of grace anymore. You don't deserve. No one deserves it. Romans 9, 14, 18 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is Romans 9, 14 through 18. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, says Paul. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The end of the story. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's what, that's what it means to be God. That's what it means to be sovereign. He gives mercy on whoever he wants, and, and he hardens whomever he wants. Now, the doctrines of grace... These are the doctrines of grace. We're intended not to, not to know them and feel proud, like, oh, God does whatever he wants and he chose me and not you. They were intended to humble man from ever thinking that he deserves grace and mercy from God. John Calvin in his commentary on this passage says, Now indeed he, Paul, openly ascribes the whole cause to the election of God. And the gratuitous, I think that's how you say it, and in no way depending on man, 
so that in the salvation of the godly, nothing higher must be sought than the goodness of God, and nothing higher in the perdition of the reprobate than his just severity. End quote. So Calvin is essentially saying that God made salvation to where those who are being saved have nothing higher to say than that salvation came only by the goodness and grace of God that did not come from them. And those who are perishing can only conclude that it was their own sin that brought them to the place of eternal damnation. God's so wise in the way that he designed salvation that no one has excuses. If you're going to heaven, it's only by the grace of God. If you're going to hell, it's because you were a sinner. And end and the story. Again, this is where we can see God's profound wisdom in his plan of salvation. Uh, before I close, I want to talk about what does this mean practically for Christians. First of all, these truths inform us of God's gracious provision for salvation. And that ought to shape our worship. It really should. You should think on these truths and they, they should stir you up in such a way that when it comes to worshiping God, you should think of the fact that God has been really gracious to you. Think for a moment what it means that we are saved from God's wrath in which we deserved. And that salvation was a gift to you. Imagine what worship would be like if everyone in the congregation... Imagine the opposite. Imagine what worship would be like if everyone in the congregation felt that they've contributed even a little bit to their salvation. Think of how that would shape their attitudes or the attitudes of any Christian as they walk around arrogantly assuming that they're the reason for their own salvation. Yet, a church that recognizes the truth of their depravity is a humble church that knows that apart from God's mercy and grace, they wouldn't stand a chance uh, of salvation. And it's with that heart that we praise God with all gratitude and praise that he would even be mindful of us, let alone send his son to die for us. Uh, in Psalm, Psalm 118, I want to look at that. This was actually Martin Luther's favorite psalm, according to Spurgeon. Spurgeon cites Martin Luther, but he says that, uh, or he cites Psalm 118 and says it was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Um, and I think I understand why, because it's a great example of... Uh, an expression of true worship with that, uh, with a worship that is informed by that salvation that came from God and not from man. I think as a church we should model Psalm 118. I'm just going to read a part of it. Psalm 118, 14 through 24. It says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly, or valiantly? Thank you. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And finally, God's provision for salvation should also inform the way that we evangelize. Since we know that it is God's work in transforming the heart of men, we can rest assured that his word will not return in void. We don't rely on seeker-sensitive methods of attraction because we know that there are no such thing as seekers. And the power of transformation does not come from all these other methods. We simply must be faithful in preaching the gospel and calling men to repent and believe. Acts 10.44. This is an example of, of what I just said. Acts 10.44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. All he did was preach the truth, the gospel. And the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard. That's gospel ministry. In other words, there's no need for manipulation. If we're faithful to preach the pure gospel, we can trust that God will draw those whom he wills by his spirit as he did with us who are saved now. Amen? Uh, next week, we'll continue on this topic on God's provision for salvation. I'm, I'm actually very excited for next week. Uh, Pastor Ron will be addressing the Trinitarian involvement of redemption and how each person of the Trinity works uh, in the work of salvation. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, any questions or comments, by the way, of anything we spoke of today? Nothing? Yes? Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said that. For those who didn't hear, she was just talking about the difference between, you know, um, you know, having that position where, you know, there's no such thing as seekers. Um, but in some sense, we do see uh, people whom the Spirit is drawing. Uh, and, and there is real interaction there with man and their responsibility responding and God and his sovereign decision on drawing them in there. So I'm glad you brought that point up because I, I, I do want to say that there, there are people who are sincerely pursuing God. Um, but I, I want to make sure that we attribute that to the work of the Spirit. And it, it's, always, it's always been through the preaching of the gospel, through the uh, teaching of God's word, that the person is in a sense, brought, brought to God. Um, what I do want to make a distinction of is uh, when Christians rely on things that are not the ordinary means of grace, right? So there's a lot of ministries that would, I mean, they, they would, for, for the sake of capturing the attention of the people, the pastor, when it's time for him to preach, they'll bring him in in a, in a in a, in a rope, in a line, and he'll come in, and two helicopters would come and land next to him just so that it's a spectacular presentation so that it would draw people in. 
and, and you see the difference there that when the word is being preached in a person's life and someone's being discipled and you see that they're drawing near to God, um, they are in a sense a seeker, uh, but they're, they're seeking only for the mere fact that the ordinary means of grace that God has appointed according to scripture is being used to bring him close to God. And those ordinary means are uh, the ministry of the word, right? The preaching of the gospel, the preaching uh, here in, in, in church, uh, evangelism um, is, is a ministry of the, of, of the word. And, uh, and th- that's, that's what God uses to draw people in by the spirit. But great point. Thank you for showing that distinction. Uh, anyone else? Yeah. Yes. The other parts of the order of salvation mm-hmm. that man is somewhat, we can say, synergistically working with God, although man's action is always passive. Right. So it's always a result of the work of God That's right. that man is doing anything in the process of salvation because, for instance, we do have to confess. That's something that we do, right. but that's only a passive action that's taking place because God has done the work to, to enable us to do that. And not only do they enable us to do that, but it's inevitable. Yeah. So the order of salvation does have aspects of it where we as people, as, as, as humans, have to respond and have to act and have to do something. Yeah. But those actions are always passive, so we can never have any credit. At the end of the day, it's an inevitable thing because yeah. of the way God has changed our nature. Amen. Very well said. Very well said. Yeah? also bring up a good point too that um, in a sense God is providentially preparing you for the day of salvation and a lot of times you hear testimonies of people's lives in the past Um, now of course we attribute salvation as a direct uh, transformation that's caused by directly from God and, and the Holy Spirit so we know on that moment in time where God applies his salvation to you, uh, it's done directly from God by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the word. But you also see that God, it's not like God didn't have control of you before that and things weren't working providentially in order to bring you to that one point. And so you make a good point that uh, there's a lot of preparation even prior to that, that the Lord is in a sense uh, indirectly working out for that one point where you, where you, where you come to Christ. That's why, that's why I never push away someone who has, let's just say, a, a testimony where they tell you about, you know, all the things that 
the Lord put in their way in order for them to recognize that he is Lord. And, that, and then you see that one point in their life where they bow the knee to God. Um, those, are, those, are, those are true. God, God has never not been in control um, over um, your life. God, God has always been preparing you for that moment. And, and, and of course, after that. Um, and so all that is, is counted in, in, in the work of, of God providentially saving you. Um, but specifically speaking, we know that um, apart from that moment of, of conversion where if, if the Holy Spirit didn't intervene, you would continue in your ways. Um, so, yeah. Any other thoughts? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this time of discussing your provision for salvation. Uh, we admit that we were all once in darkness. And as your word says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Lord, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you that you sovereignly chose us to be recipients of your grace. We truly do not deserve this. May our worship today truly reflect our thanksgiving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.